Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a very interesting guest today, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, and we will get to her shortly. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read a few comments next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Here's a couple of uh, items of feedback from this past week. Leslie Jackwell writes, I so enjoy your podcast, especially the conversations before you get to the guest. I'm a Democrat, but some of my favorite voices are people like Rick Wilson. Would love if you could get either of my emotional support Never Trumpers on your podcast, Charlie Sykes or Nicole Wallace. And I watched Adrian and I just cried. Well, thank you, Leslie. We enjoy the pre-interview banter as well. And we also love Rick Wilson. And we would love to have Charlie Sykes and Nicole Wallace on. And so hopefully that'll happen soon. And also, thanks for watching my documentary on HBO, Adrian. In terms of the David Korn interview, Shelley Frost writes, another great show, Andy. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks for listening. So let's get to our two big things. The first one being Donald Trump. I had a whole desk full of lots of papers and mostly newspaper articles, copies of magazines, copies of different plans, copies of stories having to do with many, many subjects. And what was said was absolutely fine and very, very perfectly. We did nothing wrong. This is a whole hoax. You're not concerned then with your own voice on those on those recordings? My voice was fine. What did I say wrong on those recordings? I didn't even see the recording. Are there any other recordings that we should be concerned of? Uh, I don't know of any recordings that you should be re, uh, concerned with because I don't do things wrong. I do things right. I'm a legitimate person. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. <laughs> and um, I look at it through the lens of how do we elect serious people? And I think electing serious people can't be partisan. Um, but you know, because of the situation we're in where um, we have a major party candidate who's trying to unravel our democracy, and I don't say that lightly, um, we have to think about, all right, what kinds of alliances are necessary to defeat him? Well, that was Liz Cheney saying what desperately needs to be said about Trump. But, you know, the thing with Trump, you listen to him, first of all, his energy is like, what is that voice? It's like a weird, there's nothing wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. My voice was perfect. I didn't even see the clips. Everything with him is always perfect. It was a perfect call, a perfect letter, a perfect this, a perfect that. But dude, this was your voice, okay? It's like you said it. You said it. You can't say the things that came out of my face are a hoax. He had a lot right? of papers. There were a lot of papers. Many, many. This is the thing Trump said this week. I think there's another clip somewhere. Maybe we have it. But he said, no, it wasn't, uh, it was a, it wasn't about Iran. It was about golf. Uh, and, you know, you heard, there was a lot of, you, you heard the rustling. So in Trump's warped mind, like this sound automatically means it can't be a classified document. I mean, of course. It's like a classified document would have maybe a different sound, like, <laughs> like maybe crinkling. But this sound, no, that's just, that's golf. That's golf, right? And how, how do you, how do you really respond to that? Yeah. I mean, that's it's it's okay. Case is done. Let's move on. Yeah. Is he remembering the old Joe Franklin show with <laughs> Joe Franklin's desk that was stacked to the ceiling with papers? That was a great show. Do you remember who sponsored it? No. Well, if you told me, I probably would remember. Strites his monster Strites. For, for the unleavened yeah. experience. <laughs> it's unbelievable that he literally thinks he can say, "Don't listen." to what I actually said because it's something else. How stupid can the magas be? Just to give him the benefit of the day. Why would Mark Milley be giving him a golf document? <laughs> and, why, and why would it be top secret? That was an article about Mark Milley that was on his desk. Like, what is there going to be, like an explosion at the 18th hole? Uh, in all seriousness, we are in the bubble that actually hears the news as it happens. And that isn't what his base is hearing. You're not going to get those recordings on OAN or Newsmax or even Fox News to any extent. So his base doesn't care. And does it matter? I mean, does it really matter? It's really? a witch hunt. It's all a exactly. witch hunt. Wave it, it your hand. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Move along. None of this shit matters 
in the court of law. It matters in the court of public opinion when the idiotic MAGA morons are listening. The, the, the law works a different way. Huh. He's never had to deal with the Department of Justice this way. Maybe he did like once with his father over some real estate housing shit, but mm-hmm. that came and went real quickly. But he's just under intense legal scrutiny and investigation by the federal government, by Georgia, by New York. It, it, he's never had this. So I think it, he doesn't know how to deal with it. But he also had an interesting week in some other regards. They're now really talking about more indictments you know, the jurisdiction being New Jersey, because this is where the, that conversation took place from that clip. And there's something called a superseding indictment, which Jack Smith and De- Department of Justice could file, which says, okay, even though we filed an indictment against you previously, we're now like adding another 40 counts and making it a total of X felony counts. And this indictment now supersedes the one before. So there's that too. Hmm. Uh, and that's a potential strategy for Jack Smith if he f- thinks that Judge Aileen Cannon is going to be playing footsie with Trump down in Florida. Maybe they can take the dissemination part to New Jersey and file a new indictment there. So that's an interesting twist. Uh, and they're talking about indictments of maybe Giuliani now, hmm. Mark Meadows. Uh, so it's going to get really interesting. I, I do think it's all leading up to that place. And this just takes time. We're talking about something that is incredibly unprecedented in our country. The Nixon thing didn't come even remotely close to this. He was like, there was some tapes, Mr. President, uh, we're not going to support you, you got to resign, okay, I'll resign, goodbye. That was it. In this incredibly complicated, complex, unprecedented, historic investigation and prosecution, a lot of people are going to be held accountable. Yeah, I just think the clock is ticking on Trump, and it remains to be seen if this trial happens before the election. I know they're pushing it to August, but that's never going to happen, according to every legal expert that talks about it. So if he's the nominee and it hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen until after the election. The last bit of Trump news is that a federal judge said, go fuck yourself, when he asked to have his E. Jean Carroll defamation suit dismissed. So the courts, when it comes to Trump, they are protecting democracy and sanity. Speaking of the court, the Supreme Court. So we have this rejection of affirmative action yesterday. Last year was Roe v. Wade. They overturned 50 years of legal precedent. Yesterday was 40 years of legal precedent. I got to say, when rich, white conservatives tell me racism is over, I don't know about you guys, but I believe them. Robert's been touting that racism is over since his decision in 2013 when they gutted the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is just consistent with these people who go to country clubs with all other white people except for Clarence Thomas. Yeah. But earlier in the week, the court was like, okay, in this Moore versus Harper case, we're not going to let state legislatures do whatever the hell they want. So that was a big win for democracy. But I was kind of surprised. I was actually shocked. But here's the thing that really upsets me. It's legacy admissions. You know? Sure. And that gives you a bump. That gives you a bump when you're applying, right? Um, More than a bump. It's like a third of white kids that are in Harvard. Yeah. Athletes, Mm -hmm. they get bumps. But, you know, black kids, Hispanics, Asians, they don't need any bumps. I mean, it's just infuriating to think that the people who get to decide whether racism still exists are the racists. So let's get to our winners and losers. My winner... Fair elections. The six to three SCOTUS majority dismissed the independent state legislature theory, which would have given state lawmakers nearly unchecked power over federal elections. My loser, college admissions for people of color. My winner is Bidenomics with the job numbers, what they are, which are almost the best in U.S. history. And we have infrastructure spending that we haven't done in decades that have needed to be done. And it's actually happening. We saw that in uh, Pennsylvania in two weeks. They got a highway going that was destroyed in a piece. So I think infrastructure is a part of the Bidenomics. My loser is, of course, SCOTUS. It was just a little over 60 years ago today that George Wallace stood in front of a school and said, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And we're just seeing that play out, and they're pretending that we don't have racism. My winner, the Supreme Court, which on Tuesday gave a major victory for democracy and a huge loss for Trump and election-stealing Republicans. My loser, the Supreme Court, which on Thursday got a affirmative action and a major blow to college-age students of color 
and it's a huge loss to democracy. That actually segues right into the weekly rant. And I gotta say, I'm beginning to truly loathe the Supreme Court. But I guess that's just connected to my general disdain for the Republican Party and conservatism, neither of which seem to give much of a rat's ass these days about the rule of law, the Constitution, and our beloved democracy. This week, the nation's highest court sent liberals spinning on a legal and emotional yo-yo, first ruling against an insane attempt by red states to literally do whatever the fuck they want when it comes to federal elections. And then yesterday, they had its rich, white, conservative justices decide, as they did 10 years ago when it gutted the Voting Rights Act of 65, that racial inequality and institutional racism is over. And it's now essential that everyone be treated the same. No more unfair advantages when it comes to college admissions. Except there's this little privilege thing called legacy admissions. You know, my daddy went to Harvard, my granddaddy went to Harvard, and his daddy went to Harvard. Of course, preferential treatment is just fine with white folks if the beneficiaries are other rich, connected white folks. The hypocrisy is repugnant. And I'm not even talking about the blatant corruption of justices like Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, who are virtually owned by powerful white billionaires like Paul Singer and Harlan Crow, who sure as fuck seem to have traded lavish foreign trips for preferential treatment before the court. Or how infuriating it is that Thomas, who basically owes his career to affirmative action, offered a staggeringly arrogant, delusional opinion. Shame on them. They just overturned 40 years of legal precedent, just as they did last year with Roe v. Wade after 50 years. Make no mistake, these rich, white conservatives jerk off to the thought of 1950s America, when women were in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant, where blacks and Hispanics knew their place, where gays were closeted and living in fear, and where rich white dudes controlled everything. Well, whether these white replacement-fearing sexist bigots like it or not, women won't be silenced. People of color won't be oppressed and disenfranchised. LGBTQ folks won't be forced into hiding. And old white conservatives are, thankfully, a dying breed. All right, let's get to Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is a professor of history at New York University. She writes about fascism, authoritarianism, and propaganda. She is the recipient of Guggenheim and other fellowships, an advisor to protect democracy, an MSNBC opinion columnist and television commentator, and publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. Her latest book, Strongman, Mussolini to the Present, looks at how illiberal leaders use propaganda, corruption, violence, and machismo, and how they can be defeated. Ruth, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Very excited because you're actually in the back room and it's always a treat for us when we can sit in person and talk to people. So thanks for coming in. I'm really excited to talk with you because your expertise is in an area that has always been a big area of interest to me. I was a history major in school, double journalism history major, but also the idea of fascism and how it relates to what's happening today is really interesting to me. I used to write a lot on Huffington Post, and I was on their front page almost every other day, and until I wrote a piece called Trump and Hitler, and they refused to publish it. And this was in November of 2015, and uh, very few people were making comparisons like that, and it was a real controversial subject, and they refused to publish it. So, of course, today, the conversation is very different because... We seem to be in this crazy place right now where we are talking about fascism and neo-Nazism, not just with historical perspective on people like Hitler and Mussolini, but current politicians like Trump and DeSantis. So the first thing I want to ask you is, you've had a, a stellar career writing and speaking and teaching about these subjects, but did you ever actually think that in 2023, it, it would be in America? Uh, no, in a word. And um, the reason I started um, doing all my public stuff, because um, I had written academic books, and I was already writing for CNN, but on historical issues. And then in 2015, I saw Trump. And I had already lived through, actually, Berlusconi in Italy. Um, I was actually living there as a student when he brought neo-fascists into the government for the first time. And that actually was hugely important to me because 
some of the things going on now here um, happened there where all of a sudden um, neo-fascism was normalized and like I, I would go to the dry cleaner and I uh, knew her and she'd always like say, oh, you're still studying fascism and there'd be an awkward silence. Now she said, oh, Mussolini did so many good things, uh, only subversives and Jews uh, got in the way. So this idea that somebody can normalize extremism and neo-Nazis and neo-fascism and all of a sudden people feel that they could say publicly what they used to just say like, Privately. I already lived through that. <laughs> so when Trump started addressing himself immediately to neo-Nazis and all kinds of extremists, he made like a big tent for all extremists, the rallies, the loyalty oath, the demagoguery. I, I thought I've got I've to start warning people because this was very familiar to me. So that's, um, that's how I started doing all this public stuff. And so... It sounds like it's not a surprise to you where we're at in 2023. No, it's not. And I uh, wrote a couple of pieces um, for CNN before Trump took office uh, saying that he was going to rule as an authoritarian and that the point wasn't going to be to govern. It was going to be to make money off a private office and to construct a personality cult. And people didn't really have a reference point for this. So you get, you know, I got a lot of emails like you're crazy. And so I didn't use the fascism word for a long time because it felt that people had a certain image of fascism that was, um, you know, one party state, right? Things that are not as common today. It doesn't work like that today. And so at first I didn't want to use that. I used authoritarian and that's what I use in my book. And fascism is a first stage of a whole authoritarian thing. And yet, there's so many things of fascism that get recycled. But I felt like back in 2016, 17, people didn't have, in, in our country, enough of a reference point for that. So it would be counterproductive. And they'd say, well, you're speaking out. We have parties. Um, so what are you talking about? Now it's different. And I do call Ron DeSantis uh, the Florida fascist um, because we're, you know, seven years on. And many things have happened, including a coup. So uh, I feel that it's, it's time and people have, the, people have the reference points now to understand. Do you, do you think he's more dangerous than Trump in a true fascist way? He, he's more focused. So Trump is very unusual. There's nobody else like Trump because Trump uh, is a criminal on an international level. Um, he's always had uh, associations with several foreign mafias and organized crimes. And his goals are a little different. There is no one, again, there's no one else like him who is a criminal in so many ways. So Ron DeSantis uh, is equally dangerous and that he is an empty shell of a man who I've watched from the beginning recycle. He, he kind of invents himself uh, according to what he thinks is going to get him into power. And Mussolini did the same thing. Um, and he's more focused and he's a lawyer. And so what happens sometimes in societies, and this is why he, in a way, is more dangerous. Um, you have somebody like a loose cannon, like a Trump, and, or a Duterte in the Philippines. And they talk about shooting people on Fifth Avenue. And Duterte talked about throwing people out of helicopters. And he said, I'd do it again. I love raping women. And sometimes people get sick of that or the person has too much baggage. So in comes the more disciplined extremist, equally fanatic, equally wanting to take your rights away, repress, persecute. But Ron DeSantis would never say, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. So that's the danger, that the first one, the, the loose cannon prepares everybody and normalizes lawlessness and all this other stuff. The other one comes in. And in the Philippines, guess who's in power now? So they got rid of Duterte, and he didn't want to run anymore. And they have this, uh, the Marcos family, which was from a dictatorship with martial law and all kinds of repression. But he's, he, he's more, um, he seems more, quote, normal to people. Do you think 
one of the distinctions between Trump and DeSantis is that DeSantis believes in his core some of the things he espouses in his rhetoric, whereas Trump, like it, I've always felt that if Trump's team said to him, progressives love you, he'd come out tomorrow for the Green New Deal. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Trump is a classic transactional uh, autocrat. You know, he, we all know that he uh, was, you know, uh, allying with the Russians to help him get into power, but he also asked the Chinese. It, it's just, that's why he- Which he's, makes no sense. It makes sense in the autocrat world. It, they make deals with anyone. Mm -hmm. And then as we saw with Hitler and Stalin, and then Hitler invaded Stalin, there's lots of episodes like that. Um, they just, they're out for themselves and they'll say or do anything. They will be whatever you need them to be at that moment. So DeSantis does have a, like a base of, like he's a far-right Catholic, which is very dangerous actually, because there's all these people like Bill Barr and others who are close to Opus Dei, this extreme sect. And they uh, are a through line in my book, Strongmen actually, because they have propped up so many dictators since Franco in Spain. So he has this kind of, he has certain principles, but I've also seen him, uh, remake them or reverse them like on covid so he's an opportunist as well and the more he has been inhabiting this persona of far-right extremists the more he's remaking himself so he's he's got that authoritarian opportunism mm -hmm. he really reminds me of mussolini in many ways how close do you think we got to authoritarianism i don't know if we were on the brink, what Trump was doing, and he's going to finish it really fast if he gets back in, he was setting up by capturing the judiciary. It's There's a phrase called autocratic capture, where you um, purge the institutions, like like the State Department uh, was purged of non-loyalists, and Orban does this in Hungary. So you capture these institutions, you get rid of everybody who's not going to do what you want them to do, mm -hmm. and DeSantis is doing this in Florida. And then you staff them with, you know, people who will just rubber stamp you, right? And, and DeSantis has done this with uh, the Florida House of Representatives, too, right? The, right. So, um, so Trump started all that. And the whole way he governed got people used to an autocratic leader. And the biggest thing he did was make the GOP his personal tool um, and, and require loyalty and not principles Loyalty is all that matters. And the GOP was ready for somebody like Trump. But boy, he did this extraordinarily fast. So from my point of view, studying history of autocracy, what, so, what was so efficient, people say, oh, Trump's lazy. He's not lazy. He's like incredibly efficient propagandist. And also, you know, Berlusconi and Mussolini created their own parties. So they were about, they were the head. Like there was no fascism before him, et cetera. Trump took this storied party with its own huge history. And we only have these two parties. It's giant. And in really just a few years, he made it his tool. So, in fact, by 2020, this is like shocking, that the, the election year, the GOP decided not to have any platform to put forth except we support Trump. So this is something in autocratic studies called hollowing out. When an autocrat just like, it's all about loyalty, it's all about supporting him, and whatever he stands for, you stand for. And we see this every day with Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Even like the other day, uh, he Kevin McCarthy was like, oh, I'm not sure he's the strongest candidate. So first rule of cults, because Trump is a cult leader, you do not um, ever criticize the leader. You criticize others, not the leader. So then he had to issue an apology. So... <laughs> So all of this stuff, I see it as like authoritarian cult dynamics. And in that way, Trump prepared us. He prepared the party, the institutions, and then he lost. And then he also prepared and broke huge amounts of taboos with the coup. So he, he's, the damage is incalculable. It's not irreversible, but it's- No, it's a breakdown of all the institutions and norms and boundaries. Yeah, I am always trying to reconcile America's growing fascination with fascism. You look at the MAGAs, right? 
And when you think about those who serve in the military, it's never the rich and the elite. It's always yeah. the middle class, working class people. So for decades and decades, it's themselves, their fathers, their grandfathers, who were at one point Antifa, right? Because yeah, Antifa means that was Antifa. anti-fascist, yeah. right? And being Antifa was a good patriotic thing. Yep. And they fought, they got maimed, and they died fighting fascism. Yeah. Yet today, those are the very people who are embracing fascism. I just can't understand unless it unless you just simplify it and you get back to what's it called? They're brainwashed. That's one part that that even patriotism that having somebody like Trump who is is out to destroy America and is aligned with all right. foreign autocrats, that seen that's okay. And the other the other thing is what about the Cold War where the Republican Party was tough on Russia mm -hmm. and now they're pro Putin. McCarthyism. Exactly. So these are these are shocking. I get a lot yeah, of now you have a new kind of McCarthyism. Yeah, the, well, yeah. Well, Kevin what's, McCarthyism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, what's actually happening is the you know the GOP has managed to <clears throat> you have uh, racism, you know, and segregation, and so they have all their they're trying to revive through all their election you know machinations to to have voter suppression, et cetera. Then now the new thing, uh, which I predicted in 2021, was going to become a thing like. They're anti-commie, so it's the radical left. Like, I'm supposed to be the radical left, right? Um, you got to have the commies to have fascism. This Cheney is the radical left right. to these people. Everybody's <laughs> the radical left, yeah. And so you have these talking points um, that, and they actually get recycled in, in, in amazing ways. But I get, e I get emails from, you know, retired military people, and they are struggling to understand how the party can have evolved in this very tragic direction so that they have no more loyalty to their own country. Right. And yeah. the fact they back up the coup, there's not one Republican lawmaker who has any public remorse for this coup that sent them running for their lives. That's like a huge thing. You have Trump saying that they were loving people, yeah, and I, I I'm going to pardon them. And I mean, it's the term insanity seems to be overused so many times in conversation, but it's insanity. It is. It, there's no explanation for it other than well, it's insanity. It's insanity, but unfortunately, everything that's going on um, repeats what's happened before in the authoritarian playbook. So, like the pardoning when Mussolini. Uh, who was a prime minister. We don't hear about him enough. Uh, he was a prime minister in democracy for three years. So he's much more relevant than Hitler. Um, and then he was going to go down because of a corruption scandal. So he declared dictatorship. And he'd already had all this violence with his squadras, his black shirt thugs. What does he do? Soon, as soon as he becomes a dictator, he pardons all the political criminals, they were called. That's all the thugs who beat up people and killed people. And almost all the dictators I've studied, as soon as they consolidate their power, they pardon all the thugs. And they do that because they want them to be loyal to them and they want to send a message to other people right. that violence is rewarded here. So when I see stuff like that, it is insanity. It's also really sad for our country, but it, it corresponds to things that have happened before. Mm -hmm. Understanding authoritarianism the way you do what makes people like a Kevin McCarthy and others <laughs> so loyal to him, knowing he will not ever return a shred right. of loyalty to them, and even worse, will throw them under the bus or hang them in the gallows if he could, like he's trying with Mike Pence, because he's a sociopath. What makes people become so subservient? This fealty they have to him is inexplicable to me, knowing they're never yeah. going to get it back. It's a really great question. Um, in my book, I have stories of like the the liberal politician, meaning conservative, Giolitti, who helped Mussolini. He actually like helped Mussolini be appointed as prime minister and helped him normalize. Everybody who normalized Mussolini and got him to where he was, was just thrown under the bus. And Mussolini never even came to the guy's funeral. And he'd been prime minister many times. Um, this happens over and over again. 
So it it's always a mix of like, um, there's cowardice, and you know, Sherrod Brown in 2020 during the uh, impeachment, he was a senator from Ohio, and he wrote a New York Times op-ed, and it starts saying, "Fear does in the United States Senate, fear does the business," and there are reports like senators were crying out of fear. Uh, if they went against Trump, they had to buy body armor. This also happened to Peter Meyer, a representative. So people are afraid. Trump is famously, because Trump is an international criminal with uh, mafia uh, connections, tendencies, he also has specialized forever in collecting compromising information on people, uh, also known as compromat. Um, <coughs> Lindsey Graham. <clears throat> yeah. So, okay, so that's part of it. But I also think it's something more nefarious um, than just being afraid. Some, some of these people, like a, a Bill Barr or a Lindsey Graham, who was pro-military, um, totally right-wing, awful, you know, politically, but had his certain patriotism. Yeah. Partisanship ends at the shore. Yeah. I think these people um, get a thrill from and lose themselves in identifying with someone who is so lawless. And I've seen this over and over again, all the, these case studies I have in my book, like the Chilean military. And they were like, we're not going to be like all these other lawless places that had coups, because everywhere around Chile, there were all these Cold War coups. We're going to stand up for the Constitution. And then they ended up like, you know, torturing people, you know, killing people. So there's this thing that happens where they... It's the thrill of, for the first time in their lives, being rewarded for being, having no morals. Mm. And you can do anything you want. Trump is about, there are no boundaries. Right. There are no limits. All id. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's corruption. Some, are get, some get bought off, right? They get deals. Um, and, you know, Trump rolled back 100 environmental regulations. So there's those elites. So this is called authoritarian bargains. Uh, where the leader makes these deals with all the different sectors of the elites, and and they stick with them. This is the crazy thing. Once they make these deals, the guy can do anything, murder anybody, whatever, and they very rarely peel off. So, and in the case of the GOP, they've been put under this authoritarian submission, and some of them like it. And so you get these humiliating things like like Mike Pence, you know, th he was targeted for death and he didn't speak out. It's like, really? And he could have actually, because he did the right thing for one day of his life. He could have actually led, because elites are very important and, and having studied these things, he could have made a difference in our history. He could have led everybody on January 7th when Mitch McConnell too was like, this is, this was bad. And he chose the coward's path. And that's, that was, and now by January 8th, they were already like, what coup? You right. know? And now everyone wants us to forget about the coup or they were patriots. So it's, it's a mix of things, but I can tell you that it repeats in history. So it's about human psychology, like mm -hmm. the demagogue and the follower. Mm -hmm. And you haven't mentioned the base. Yeah. Which seems to be what everyone always says. Oh, it's because he controls the base. Uh, yeah. Do you not see it the same way? Um, no, the base is very important. In fact, now uh, you could say the base is in control because these these MAGA extremists are setting the agenda. This is why, like, Ron DeSantis is getting more and more extreme because they're almost like anticipating what the base will want. So the base is very powerful especially when you still have elections. So you could say in the old days, like you just get rid of elections and mm -hmm. people have no say. But is, are they as entrenched as w as we liberals think they are? Because, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to go on record and say, I don't think they're very bright. They're not very intellectually curious. They have no political positions. They don't care about policy. They're not going to a no, Trump rally to hear about deregulation. They're going to the Jerry Springer show. I once had a conversation with a, a diehard Trump supporter, I think it was in 20, and I said, who would you vote for if it wasn't Trump? And he said, Bernie Sanders. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> yeah. Because Bernie offered that same kind of bluster and blah. Yeah. It was a show. Are they as entrenched as we think? Could someone come along? You look at Christie today. 
could Christy somehow break through because he he's not not Christy a, a strong no, <laughs> but can the base be pulled away? DeSantis is trying. I I have a um a political newsletter Substack. Who doesn't have a Substack? And mine's called Lucid. Mm-hmm. And I did a a piece I don't know like a month ago or so of how uh, Ron DeSantis was totally devoid of charisma, completely wooden human. Um, semi-human. That's a compliment, by the way, Woody. He's trying to construct a personality cult on Instagram. And um, I've, I've analyzed images. That's a lot of the work I do. I wrote a book on fascist film propaganda. So I'm all in this. And he's trying very hard to have the images speak um, so he can get this, he can, he can get, have these same dynamics that Trump has with the crowd. And one strongman, uh, you know, uh, commonality is that these, they know how to read the crowd and they, not all of them have charisma, but they know how to use emotions. Like Trump's always saying, I love you. You know, I'm here for you. They really want you and I'm in the way. I'll do anything for you. So that's very compelling. Good impression, by the way. Yes, I'm not trying to. Um, That's super compelling to people because especially people who felt, quote, forgotten. Right. and I think that Democrats could use, I always think like, how powerful could using emotion be when the emotion's real? Because Trump's just making it up. He hates them. Right. He despises them. He leaves them. Remember the rally? He left like elderly people in the cold yes. with no transportation. That's the authority. Right. Or Putin. Like, just, he doesn't care how many people die. Um, he'd just send them to fight. They just couldn't care less. And in March 2020, um, when the pandemic was hitting, I did an interview with Huffington Post with uh, Christopher Matthews, who studies extremism. And I said, you know, Trump just doesn't give a crap if you live or die. He doesn't care. Literally. And people got very angry. They got very angry because this seemed too bleak. And it's like, but I've been in the heads of these guys for years. So this is how they speak. But despite well, what, all it's, that, It's fascinating people, they wouldn't believe that when he wanted his own vice president dead. They don't, because Fox News is Fox, they should say news. Fox has been so effective as well as all the other right-wing channels and stuff that they don't see it that way. They're not even getting the information. Um, so they fall, they fall in love in a way. They're persuaded. Trump, is, Trump spends a huge amount of his time being a propagandist. He's really expert. Um, he repeats, he uses caps, interestingly. Mm-hmm. So that's what the base responds to. It's, it's, you're right, it's nothing to do with policy. I've had debates with friends when I call Trump an evil genius. because He's not a genius, he's stupid. No, no he's an no, evil yeah, genius. You're not, you're not stupid. But also, he's oozing charisma to the people yeah. who like that. Yeah. When Trump talks about woke or whatever, it's a show. When DeSantis does it, it's a yawner. Because to your point, he is a wooden human. So getting back to my question, yeah, if, yeah. if like another showman comes along, if someone yes. can make them laugh, because it seems like the thread is so thin, like there's nothing really holding it together other than, oh, okay, I never gave a shit about politics, but this guy makes me laugh, so I'll go stand in the rain for four fucking hours and, and watch him talk about himself and what a victim he is for another two hours. Yeah, the victimhood thing is Because really he important. makes me laugh. Like, it's not just that. He also can't makes- you break that away? He makes them hate. And people like to have enemies. Well, that's a good point. I wanted to ask you, foundationally, is it just all about racism? Is that he said, okay, you racists can now be legitimate because you're a guy's in the White House. And it's okay to say all the quiet parts out loud. No one's going to care anymore. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to put on a white hood or a white robe and go into the woods and burn crosses. Mm-hmm. You could do it in a Tennessee state legislature and just, you know, just be whatever you want to be. Is, is that... that fear of white replacement is that what this mm-hmm. is really all about because it certainly isn't policy it's it's, it's not a, like about experience yeah. it's not about any why else would he have this grip on these people it's a lot of it is that it's not only that and in fact um latinos are uh, voting for trump uh in or or republicans in general Miami, we're very Dade county it's crazy yeah that's happening so for some people and and there is this immigrant uh there's a syndrome the immigrant who becomes anti-immigrant. Right. It's my father, who's quite right-wing, is in that category. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
for many people, it's about the racism. Uh, there are other things going on, though. There's patriotism, like totally twisted, misguided. There's uh, being in love with the demagogue. Um, there's that stuff. Um, and you can also say with women, that's a perennial question I get, like, why are women following him when the, and the GOP when they're trying to take rights away? Um, I remember watching rallies and they would interview the women at the rallies and the women would be wearing t-shirts with an arrow that says <laughs> yeah. he can grab my pussy anytime. Yeah, yeah. That's... How do you explain, like, in what other universe would that have ever been okay to these people? Like, do you have a daughter? Is it okay if some man like Trump just goes and grabs her private phone? Like, it's part of the... Everything is okay now. In fact, um, my book is the first book that has a chapter on masculinity and says it's organized by the tools of rule, so mm -hmm. propaganda, violence, corruption. And I put a chapter on masculinity and I say this is just as important as the other things mm -hmm. because um, it, it's integral to the personality cult. That's why you have somebody like this uh, guy, Robert Kennedy, who's like trying to, he's running as a quote Democrat. All he's doing is like lifting weight. So it's like mm -hmm. hyper machismo. Right. Hypermasculinity. Well, it's interesting because I noticed that the other day and I actually tweeted. Um, I said, people, when we're choosing leader of the free world, age, race, religion, muscles, none of that shit should matter, right? None of it should matter. Gender, sexuality, not, you know, qualifications, experience, you know, temperament. That's what matters. That's not. But you're right. There are people that's that That's the are, spectacle. That goes back to the spectacle. In fact, so... These, these, these people like DeSantis and Kennedy, and there are many others, are symptoms of what Trump, the kind of, I don't like to talk about like pathologies of politics, but we'll continue for a sec with this. You know, the, Trump, Trump had this disease, like Trump diseased the population mm -hmm. and, and made them act against their, it's all about acting against your own interests. And he legitimized, as we've said, you know, hypermasculinity, brutalism, uh, lawlessness. So you get these people like Kennedy. He wouldn't be there without Trump. DeSantis wouldn't be doing what he's doing without Trump. He's the mini Trump um, who wants to surpass Trump. So once these, the lesson is, once these guys come on the scene, they change things for decades. Even if you get rid of them and you see, they, then they want to come back. Right, Netanyahu just came back, right. right? And the reason they have to come back is that it's not about governance, it's about getting away with crime. Right. And they're all corrupt. In fact, um, Trump, Putin, Berlusconi, and Netanyahu ran for office in the first place because they were under investigation. Right, well, Netanyahu in particular, once, yeah. you know, he, he's so, literally running or he ran just to- To get back, and know. then, oh, judicial reform. Mm -hmm. So they they don't think like normal politicians, and that's what I've tried to um, to educate people as a scholar. Like you can't think of them in the in a normal way because regular people don't want to run for office if they're under investigation. That makes no sense. Right. Strong men, yeah, I'm running for office for sure. <laughs> I mean, history does repeat itself. Why, especially in this country, are people so ignorant to? not just our history, but world history, and not fearing what we've seen happen? Um, well, one uh, thing I didn't expect when I wrote the book, so it goes over 100 years of history, every people was unprepared um, and didn't see it coming because it's always slightly different. And then there are these national myths. And so in the United States, even though we had like a regional authoritarianism in the South, um, you know, institutionalized racism, right? We're the beacon of freedom, where we are where everyone comes to be free and escapes their bad places and comes here. And that's, that's true. It's always been double-edged. We've helped democracy in the world, and then we've taken it away, like in Chile, um, helping coups and stuff. So everybody thinks that they're going to escape it, and then they're not learning from history. And we are we are particularly prone to be saying, oh, it can't happen here. And so it's been a big, I mean, I've done hundreds of interviews a year since 2016 to like mm -hmm. help people understand that it can happen here. Well, I mean, 
I'm a Jew. You're looking at two other Jews here. You're, I think you're a half Israeli. Yeah, my dad's Israeli. Um, never again. How, you know, how many times have we heard that in the last several decades? Never again. But you start to look back on the last eight years, and you're like, no, actually, that stuff could, and in some parts of the world, <clears throat> is sort of happening again. Not the extreme mm -hmm. of a genocide, but the genocide was how many years after Hitler first emerged on the scene in, in Germany after its democracy fell. And, and so, Putin, Putin is, uh, Putin's war is not just a war of territorial occupation, it's a war of annihilation. Yeah. It's a I genocidal mean, so war. If, knowing what we know about Trump, how after all these years are we just not able to say what's going on here? This is wrong. And I'm not even talking about the electorate. I'm talking about the McCarthy's, the McConnell's, all the people that could have killed him off uh, yeah. January 7th, 2021. Yeah, we can't, we, we can never count on those people. Well, the good news is... Oh, there's good news. There is some good news. Um, I have a resistance chapter in the book and it taught me a lot. The thing about these people is they're so arrogant that they don't see that they spawn a huge counter reaction. And actually, um, I wish that media would carry this. This is going to be my next book about anti-authoritarian. Um, we're living in the middle of a global renaissance of, of mass protest. In countless countries, they're having protests that are either the largest they ever had, like Israel, okay. or the largest they've had in like many years, decades, like Serbia just said. It's all over the place. Even China. Those protests were a huge deal in China. Iran. Iran. And think of the bravery of those people. And here, we're seeing very interesting things, which I track, like in Tennessee um, and in Florida. You're having these alliances between like grassroots activists and state lawmakers. Um, that's important. Because to have effective protest, you've got to have connections with some of the elites. So there are things starting to happen. And also, like, no one talks about the Women's March anymore. But that was the largest uh, mobilization in American history. And it affected the midterms mm -hmm. next year. And then you had Black Lives Matter, also the largest in American history. So I think we're not done with protest. Um, and I think we're going to see some of the same things happening all over the world here. Because there is a counter-reaction that comes. Mm -hmm. So to play devil's advocate and be the Debbie Downer, <clears throat> we also see an unprecedented rise in anti-Semitism, yeah. uh, anti-Asian hate crimes, uh, book bans, uh, homophobia, transphobia, yeah, like never before. How, how does that fit into the positive outlook that you have? There, you know, there people are suing, um, and the media doesn't cover it. I wrote a piece like a while ago uh, that private business owners uh, for CNN, I wrote it, were suing Ron DeSantis um, because they don't want him to be interfering with how they can train their workforce, um, you know, not mentioning racism, the anti-diversity, anti-equity um, stuff. And there's a lot of lawsuits going on. Um, they just, they're not being covered as a kind of systemic phenomenon. No, it, and it's a huge, we're a bit more challenged. Uh, there is a rise of every sort of hate crime. We're challenged because of the guns thing. People, and so it's, there's a lot of uh, state legislation to outlaw protest or make it difficult. You know, now you can run over someone with a car and it's not a criminal charge. There are all those things that go on. And autocrats always do that. But the guns problem, there's a reason that George Santos and others wear assault rifle pins on their lapels. The fear of being mowed down. You mean Congressman George Santos. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Got to give him the respect that he deserves. I, yes. Thank you. No, why is he? I was thinking this morning, why is he still there? But anyway. Well, all the reasons we're talking about today. I digress. <laughs> um but that's that's a problem, uh, and there's a, that's why the the GOP is wedded to you know the gun industry and the threat of gun violence. Uh, is it makes protest more difficult in our country. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, people are out in Iran, which is one of the most repressive regimes in the world. So we will see. But there there are many things brewing, um, which 
And I, one of my slogans is, you never uh, underestimate the American people. You certainly do not, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Now to put my positive hat back on, it's easy to say, oh, we almost slipped into an autocracy. But then if you look at the last eight or nine years, almost every major election the Republicans have lost, mm -hmm. the courts in almost every single, if not every single case, has upheld democracy and put down his bogus attempts to overturn elections, overthrow the government. So to sort of get back to what you were saying, are we too focused on noise and not really looking at where the country really is? Maybe it's not as bad as we think. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of good things and um, that are happening and people are sensitized in a new way. Um, I think one of the weak links still, and people are working on this, is business. Business has to invest in democracy, and, and business has always been a supporter of autocrats. Mm -hmm. And until they realize that their businesses are getting plundered, um, business never does well under autocracy. That's a myth. So we have work to do to sensitize other sectors that are influential to get them to invest in the right candidates and see that it's not in their interest uh, to back people who uh, are costing us billions of dollars from gun violence and poor health care, all of that. So there's a lot of work to do, but people are energized and sensitized in a new way because of what we've gone through. And the other thing is that now there's so many polls showing that the Republican extremist views, like those of DeSantis, they're not even popular with some Republicans. Like Republican women are mothers and, and non-mothers too. They don't want children mowed down. So this is what a, a backlash is building. Um, and that will translate into um, fewer votes for Republicans, I believe, down the line. Well, and we saw after the Dobbs case what happened. You know, yeah. women and men mobilizing and, and yeah. affecting election. We just had a big case yesterday on affirmative action. I want to yeah. ask you your opinion as a professor, how you think that's going to impact things. But I think that speaks to yet another thing of potential backlash in the next election. How do you think that decision is going to impact this conversation um, and the educational process? It just may. So one of my theses is, you know, that, that Trump and the GOP represent a kind of um, counter-revolution in a way. These, Whenever a society has had a lot of social progress, it could be racial emancipation, gender equity, workers' rights, that's when these guys come up and they say, I'm going to turn the clock back. And so getting rid of, you know, affirmative action or trying to uh, is part of this, of just trying to repress uh, democracy press, repress the, the values of equity um, and making things. And this is, you know, white grievance, right? It, oh, we shouldn't be discriminated against, all this. So it's a victory for that, um, but there will be an enormous backlash. And there have been some, it's still early, right? There have been some analysis about how this actually will affect certain schools and how, to what extent, but it's devastating proof of the will to just turn the clock back, um, uh, taken together with all the voter suppression, which is racialized, everything else, um, policing, all those things that are very, very authoritarian in nature, and we didn't characterize them using that word. And my thing is that I'm not a specialist in American history. I'm first generation. I did take U.S. history in high school, but I, I'm a, a a scholar of global things, and I turn that lens on our country, and that's what's allowed me to say original things. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is authoritarian. You're just not calling it that, and and that's why I think there will be a backlash because that's happened almost every time. Do you think we slip further into near fascism before we get to that stage where we're looking at this in the rearview mirror? Is it going to get it, worse before it gets better? It, it could get worse before it gets better. Um, it's just highly important to make sure Trump does not enter the White House again. He will never leave. And in your opinion, how likely or unlikely is that? If you were in Vegas right now and you were looking at a tote board, what are the odds of him? Um, 
it's hard to, hard to say because I don't I don't know what will happen. People like Trump. Um, I mean, there is a playbook for this. Uh, you you need to create as much chaos and despair in a society as possible. All that crap about the debt ceiling, where they really want some of them want it to default. They want people to be in despair. They want Weimar again, mm -hmm. so that Hitler, i.e., Trump, to go back to your original thing, can um, rise again, right, <clears throat> and save everyone. So a lot of the things that are going on are designed to make things worse, like terribly worse. Mm -hmm. And you never know what they're going to pull next. I think maybe we'll have a revival of the convoy movement because part of the, the oh, playbook. The convoy. That's important. It's when still on its I have way. like a, a mental checklist uh, from doing all these case studies. And in Chile, very important, it was US backed, US partly designed. They had like a convoy movement to block the supply chain so people couldn't get food. Mm. They did economic warfare. Um, they made that society uh, as unlivable as possible. The, the point of this is to prove that democracy doesn't work. Right. And that in this case, it's Biden. There it was Allende. They're incompetent and it's unlivable. And then you build an appetite for the demagogue. So that's what they're trying to do. And, and I'm mentioning that because who knows what is going to pop up from the in, d diabolical mind of Bannon and Michael Flynn and all these people. Or just where the country may be. One of the things yeah. in, in this piece I wrote in 15, aside from making all kinds of foundational parallels to Hitler in the rhetoric and the cadence of the speech and all that, I ended it with, we have a strong economy mm -hmm. imagine a guy like trump if unemployment was 20 percent, yeah or if everyone was losing 40 percent in their savings and their home values were underwater imagine that america today with trump in particular he'd be elected in a heartbeat well that's we're also, lucky that's the yeah. only thing to me that really has yeah. kept us from slipping into autocracy is the but, strength of the american economy but look at to your point but look at the um, if you if you ask uh, Trump supporters or just GOP, they think the um, economy they've been brainwashed. They think the economy is terrible, right. even though so many jobs have been created. In fact, what Biden is doing is through creating manufacturing jobs, addressing himself to working class. He's actually uh, it's quite brilliant if you study autocracy. He's trying to take care of some of the structural things that cause people to want autocrats in the first place. He's trying to bolster from below the whole system, including with broadband. You know, all the stuff he's doing is like a giant democracy promoting enterprise. And yet the more he accomplishes, the more he's a huge threat to the Republicans. So, so they're, they're managing through the strength of their media machines to present the economy as terrible, right? So my right-wing parents who live in two different countries, they're always like, and they're, they only follow right-wing, you know, uh, media, they're always calling me like, things are so terrible in America. I'm like, no, they're not. But that's what they hear. I love that you hear. dropped on me that you have two right-wing parents like a couple of minutes from the end of this conversation because that could take us into another three <laughs> hours because I have a, a very similar situation. I have a whole family of right-wingers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating thing to watch where the country is today and sort of project out where it could go and why it hasn't gone certain places. The fact that the economy is so strong that he doesn't have that weapon to use in a real sense. You know, This morning, the inflation numbers came out and it's continuing to improve. But um, the economy is great. And mm -hmm. I think we're really fortunate that it is because if it wasn't, you look at Hitler and Mussolini, they used people's desperation, mm -hmm. you know? It's... Imagine if we were rationing food and gas in this country. Yeah, that's their, that's their expert. They create a crisis or exploit a crisis and present themselves as a solution. Right. Well, he right. He's the, but right. Mm -hmm. They always that's say that about do. Trump. He's the arsonist who calls the, mm -hmm. the fire department. In our last minute or so, I want to totally switch gears. <laughs> uh, you probably, I, I'm almost willing to bet you've never been asked this question before. Uh-oh. <laughs> so we here in the back room like to get a window into people's souls. One of the ways to do that is through music. Mm. Good window into the soul. So I want to hear your top five 
musical artists of all time? Oh, um, so people always find this surprising. Um, I don't even know if I could pick uh, the names of them, but I am I'm totally into electronica and EDM. That's a shock. Yeah, I know. Um, and my my clubbing days are over. So but, you're like you're gonna leave this interview but, and like in the car ride home, you're yeah. gonna be just like banging out to totally. Squirrelex in the car. Totally, <clears throat> and um, yeah, from the, like in the '90s, Massive Attack, uh, up to some of like the you know DJs or whatever, mm -hmm. and that I find um, writing to that keeps me going, and certainly writing about all these awful people. It, it, Strongman was a hard book to write, and I had like I was pretty much blasting mm -hmm. electronica. The, I was just going to say, Deep I, I into now the have night. the image of you writing about fascist strongmen with this like <laughs> this crazy techno electronica stuff in the background. Yeah, I, I don't know. It changes the whole picture for me. I don't know. It was like the heavy techno, like the Berlin stuff, but um, I, I definitely um, I like that. All right, keep going. You got a few more to go. Oh, um, other types of music? Or bands or artists? Um, I'm now I'm going to draw a blank. Oh, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> it's like, I don't you should throw out something now that's completely different, like Joni Mitchell. I like, ta I like electronica and Joni Mitchell. Taylor Swift. No, no, You're not a Swifty. No, oh my god, I'm failing. Beatles, I'm failing at this. Oh my um, goodness, yeah. No, I'm, as soon as I leave, Gangster here, rap. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> think of all the people. <laughs> I'm going to think of all the albums I have at home that I've enjoyed for years. All right. Well, I think you gave us some kind of a window into your soul with uh, electronica. I got to say, I would, I would not. It, if I had made a list of music you like, I got to say electronica. It's the it's yin, yin and the yang because uh, yeah. I, while I was writing, I listened to a lot of that. And then I did a lot of yoga. <laughs> the e wow. Equally important. So you have yoga, and then you have electronic yoga. The jacking yoga. up, and then you got to calm down. Yeah. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I, I, I will go on record and say it's one of my favorites because of the subject matter and because of just the conversation I think was truly fascinating, chilling, and interesting at the same time because of where we are in this country. Hopefully, we'll get to continue this conversation at some point and do it again. And I thank you for coming in. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Well, we've had some conversation here in the back room. Maddie seems to believe, because he looks at data, that not a lot of people stick around for the very end of the podcast. You know, where I tell you this is episode whatever, and thanks for listening. And so we've decided one way to maybe have some fun with it, because it can sound kind of boring after a while, same thing every week. Uh, not only have some fun, but maybe make it so that you want to stick around and listen to it. Because you don't know who's going to show up. I've been known to do some impressions. So I think what we might do is have a celebrity stand-in each week. This week, we are very fortunate to have Bob Dylan in the back room. Hey, Bob. Oh, hey, Andy. Do you mind reading the clothes? Uh, no, I don't. All right. Well, can we set Bob up with the microphone? Yes. Okay. All right. Are you ready, Bob? Is it rolling, Bob? To be alone with you. Okay. That's episode 89. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446 or email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very, very helpful. If you don't like the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg. Associate producer, Jen Hamoud. Cricket and Gale for our artwork. Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music. Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio. And a big thank you again to our guest, Ruth ben -Giat. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you join us again next time. Have a great week.